Welcome back to the Sharp Bend Podcast. I'm Ashley, the creator and hostess of the show. This podcast is brought to you by the American Alpine Club and sponsored by Mammut. For over 150 years, Mammut has been making gear that recreational and professional users trust to perform in the mountains. Mammut works hard to keep you safe so you can confidently go. This month, Mammut will be giving away their Stony Hardshell Jacket. This jacket is designed to keep you dry and warm on long days in the backcountry or lapping at your local resort. The Stony uses PFC-free DWR waterproofing treatment to minimize its impact on the environment and is fair wear approved. Stay tuned to the very end of this episode to learn how you can win the Mammoon Stony Hardshell Jacket. Thank you to our friends at Desert Mountain Medicine, Sunto, and Minus33 for supporting this show. I'd like to introduce Tyler Willis for this next episode. He's a 35-year-old outdoor enthusiast, and today he's going to tell us about his near-death experience that happened this year in early August of 2020 on the Teton Glacier in Teton National Park in Wyoming. Welcome to the show, Tyler. Okay, my name's Tyler Willis. I'm an English language learner specialist in Evanston, Wyoming. Um, I'm married. I have two children. They are seven and four. I grew up in Heber City, Utah, and kind of been playing in the mountains my whole life. I I do a lot of climbing, uh, mountaineering. Um, Canyoneering is probably the thing that I do the most with ropes down in uh, southern and central Utah, going down through the slot canyons. Do that quite a bit. And then skiing, backpacking, paragliding, scuba diving, mountain biking, you know, kind of the gauntlet of outdoor sports. Nice. Sounds like you're pretty well-rounded. Um, yeah, I just bought my first paragliding setup this summer too, and I'm really excited about that. So tell me, what are we talking about today? Okay. Um, well, I had a, quite the adventure in uh, Teton National Park. Uh, it started out with my buddy and I driving up from Evanston up to Jackson Hole. Uh, it's about three and a half hours up to the park, uh, Teton National Park. We got to the Lupin Meadows Trailhead about eight o'clock in the evening, kind of set up camp in the back. And our goal was to head up the Grand uh, early the next morning. So we woke up about 1230 in the morning for our Alpine start. Uh, By one o'clock, we were on the trail and headed up to attempt to summit the Grand. Um, Had you ever climbed the Grand before? I hadn't. I had been as high as the upper saddle but we got turned around because of weather again with my buddy, Josh Anderson, who's he'd, he'd done it three other times, um, via a few different routes. And we were just aiming for the uh, Owen Spalding route on this one. Um, so we got to the upper saddle weather looked great. We'd passed many other groups, um, starting about the lower saddle all the way to the upper saddle. And when we got to the, um, belly crawl, there was one other group. They were kind enough to let us kind of slip by. And then we were roped up, simul-climbing the, uh, the rest of the route to the top and got to the summit before 9 o'clock. We were the only ones on the summit. Just a beautiful day, hardly even any wind. And we had the summit to ourselves for about 20 minutes, which is pretty rare from what I hear on the Grand. Wow. So eight hours and you were on the summit. Yeah. And then back to the car just two and a half hours later. So we were about 10, 20, uh, round trip. Oh, you guys were cruising. Yeah. So we did, we had a good time. Our goal was sub 12, um, just 
we've, we've both been training for marathons and done quite a bit of running. So once we got kind of out of the, uh, scrambly stuff coming down, we ran the rest of the way back to the truck and got to the truck hot and tired. Okay. So you got back to the truck and, and then what do you guys do for the rest of the afternoon? We went and soaked in Cottonwood Creek for a couple of hours and then went into Jackson, got some dinner and then headed out and camped in Snake River Canyon um, with the idea of floating the, the river the next day. And so we set up camp again, just slept in the back of the truck, kind of uh, dirt bagging it. And then woke up in the morning, floated the river on paddle boards, which was exciting in and of itself. <laughs> that was supposed to be our easy day. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but that was a, you know, going, going through the rapids on a paddleboard was an adventure for sure, but we'd done quite a bit of that as well. And my buddy again is a really, really good kayaker. So he's got all sorts of river experience. Um, so we, we did that, came back through Jackson, got some pizza and headed back out to Lupin Meadows that night to crash in the back of the truck again. And with the idea of going up Mount Owen early the next morning. And have you climbed Mount Owen before? No, neither of us had climbed Mount Owen. That was a summit that we needed to get in the Tetons. And so we were, you know, fairly tired from our day climbing the Grand and then floating the river and hadn't had a really good night's sleep in quite a while. But we we felt strong. We felt confident and thought, hey, let's go for it. And, you know, if things don't go as as we want, we can always turn around. Right. So, Yeah. Did the Alpine start again? This time we started hiking just before three o'clock in the morning. Um, went up through the switchbacks, hit the junction where you can go to Amphitheater and Secret Lake. Took that junction, and uh, we were tired, but again we were passing other groups of, of climbers, feeling pretty strong overall, uh, and thought, "Hey, this is going to go okay." And so we got up, did the scramble down, hit the moraine just as the uh, it was starting to get light. Sun wasn't quite up yet, but it was starting to get light. And we traversed across the uh, toe of the Teton Glacier um, on really a pretty benign looking snowfield and roped up, put um, our ice axes on, got our crampons on, and we were ready to go up the uh, Coven route of Mount Owen. So started climbing from there and was going, going pretty well quite steep on the snow and uh, the snow was still really hard packed from the night. And so it was pretty quick moving for that part, but the normal route kind of goes into a couloir and we could see it was melted out and looked really nasty into there. And so an optional route is kind of to go left of that couloir and go up a face, which looked pretty easy. Um, we like just, a snow we, face? This was a rock face to the okay. left. So it, in the uh, couloir is kind of, it's supposed to be snow, but a lot of it had melted out by this point. And so we decided instead of sticking in the goalie to go left out onto the face. So we, uh, we went up that I'm a new trad leader. And so we were taking turns leading each pitch. We only had a 40 meter rope. So the pitches weren't very long. We'd just kind of move up honestly, probably five, two, five, three climbing, really not very difficult and really just kind of having fun placing gear talking about different things that i needed to work on uh, as a trad leader and just moving up the mountain and we had the sun came up we hadn't seen any other people all day we reached kind of the upper half of the mountain where there's a large snow field that comes around 
and we'd read that it could be pretty nasty. Um, and from there, you can cross the snowfield and go up onto the 5-6 East Ridge of Mount Owen, or you can traverse around the snowfield and go on to the 5-4 uh, Coven route. And uh, we kind of looked at both of them, decided, hey, let's play it smart and easy. So we uh, decided to go for the 5-4 route up to the top of Mount Owen on the Coven. And once we hit the East Ridge, we actually ran into another climbing party, uh, two climbers from Wyoming. I don't know their names, but really nice fellas. And they were doing the Grand Traverse. So those were the first two climbers that we saw that day. And we ended up summiting with them, followed the 5-6 route up to the top of Mount Owen, summited with those two other climbers, took some pictures, ate a little snack, and kind of just enjoyed the view of the Grand and Tiwanot from the top of Mount Owen. Was it nice weather? It was nice. Yeah, it was actually quite warm, probably in the upper 70s, lower 80s, a uh, little bit of a breeze, which is normal in the Tetons, and um, no, no threatening clouds. We couldn't see any signs of afternoon thunderstorms building. We did summit quite a bit later than I had anticipated. We'd kind of thought we would be summiting before noon based on how the grand went for us. But based, but because of us being more tired from our previous two days of adventures and also just me practicing trad leading and the route was, it was a little bit more difficult than we were anticipating. And just it, all the rope management too, it seems like. Right. Yep. That always slows you down. And so we, we summited about two thirty in the afternoon and I told my wife that I would be checking in, I thought, from the trailhead by 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And so I texted my wife, said, hey, it's probably going to be sometime before midnight when we come out. Don't worry. We're doing okay, but it's been a really long, exhausting day. And so that was my, uh, that was my message to my wife, which I'm glad that I got out to her because I did have cell phone reception from the top of the mountain. Um, and then we started to proceed down the mountain about 3, 3.30 in the afternoon is when we uh, left the top of Mount Owen. And the route down took some route finding. We were trying to avoid, again, that really steep snow field that if you pitched off of it, you were going to fall several hundred feet. Uh, we ended up having to cross it at one point, but we placed a little bit of gear and um, belayed each other across the narrow section that we ended up crossing. Um, about right there is where we ran into the only other two climbers we saw that whole day who ended up being um, Ryan and Kaya, which they'll play into the story later on. <laughs> but we chatted with them for a few minutes and they had come up Tiwanot, rappelled off Tiwanot, and then we're heading up Mount Owen. And they were going to descend via the Coven route and head out to the uh, head back to their cars from there. So they were going to go out the same way we were. So we gave them a little bit of beta on how we had uh, summited Mount Owen. And then they asked us about the rappels and things going down the Coven route. We told them that we'd seen several anchors in there and that that's basically what we were planning on doing. So said, said our goodbyes, they headed for the summit and we continued to descend the Coven route. And a lot of rappelling, probably eight or 10 rappels through there as we descended the Coven route. Um, and then a lot of down climbing and it's kind of loose, scrambly stuff. Um, you know, always danger of rock fall. 
and it started to kind of wear on us. We were pretty mentally exhausted by the time we were getting low down on the Coven route. And I actually turned to Josh and said, man, I cannot wait to feel safe. Feel like if I trip and fall, I'm not going to die. Because it was just hours of that same, you know, descending and ascending. And it was, uh, it was starting to wear on us mentally and physically. We were pretty exhausted. So we got to our trekking poles. Josh is coiling the rope. And this is right there at the toe of the Teton Glacier again. And you can look up into the Teton Glacier from there and see it's a legit, legitimate glacier. You know, there's crevasses, um, big ice falls, things like that. But right where we were, there were many footsteps and it seemed pretty safe. So we unroped. I still had my harness on. I still had my helmet on. I had my ice axe and was, I was going to, you know, kind of try to glissade down the snow. Um, Josh coils the rope. I grab my trekking poles and his trekking poles and I start walking down the snow field. And I'm just thinking, I am so glad to be safe. Well, that was famous last thought because as I was descending, um, pretty quickly, I just stepped on a weak spot in the snow and fell. And there was no indication that there was anything other than just hard packed snow where I stepped. Uh, as I was falling, I thought, this is it, right? Um, really no time to do anything. I still had my ice axe in my hand. I had thrown the uh, trekking poles as I was falling. So I, they did not go into the uh, crevasse with me and fell down with a whole bunch of ice and snow about 30 feet. Uh, once I came to a stop, I wedged into a constriction in the crevasse and my feet were dangling my, I was pinched at my climbing harness and my stomach and my upper half was free. I still had my ice axe in one hand, in my right hand, and my left hand was free and I still had my backpack on. So, But your feet are dangling. My feet are dangling and I can't see the bottom of the crevasse because by this time it's about nine o'clock in the evening. So it's getting dark and we're and I can't see the bottom, but I can hear water running below me. So I know I don't want to fall any further. And once I came to a stop, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm safe. I'm okay. Miraculously, I don't think anything is broken. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get out of this pretty quickly. Josh will lower me, lower me a rope. I'll hand line out or press it out or whatever. And we'll have a crazy story to tell. So I yell up to Josh, dude, I fell in a crevasse, um, pretty stuck. Get me a rope down here. Okay, man. So he, uh, he put the trekking poles across the lip to try to create a stronger, um, lip there on the ice and lowered the, uh, climbing rope down to me. And I should say Josh is a former search and rescue. He was on the Pinedale search and rescue team in Pinedale, Wyoming, and he's pretty highly trained with a lot of rescue techniques. And he's been on the short haul team and been a part of many search and rescue operations. So I, I, I felt like I was in good hands. Yeah. A, the best, it sounds like the best hands. That's the kind of guy that I want to go out with all the time. <laughs> exactly. Yep. He's the, he's the guy. And as now that I'm back, um, many people have said, if, if I'm ever in a situation where my life is in danger, that's the guy I want trying to save my life. And yeah. uh, I'll vouch for that. 
also Ryan and Kaya who are going to come into the story. Um, so he lowers the rope down to me with the idea that I'll just tie into my harness and then I can start kind of working my way up as he pulls and hopefully I'll get out. Um, unfortunately my harness was so pinched in there, there was no way I was going to be able to tie into my harness. Um, and so I just kind of wrapped my arm around the rope and was hold was hanging on while he's, you know, trying to decide what to do next. And he looks back behind him and he can see the headlamps of Ryan and Kaya just coming off of the Coven route there. So he yells over to them, my buddy's fallen in a crevasse. Can you help us? And lo and behold, Ryan yells back, I have gear and I've done crevasse training. Oh my gosh. uh, This story (laughs) is just getting better. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, literally one thing went wrong and then from here on out, a whole bunch of things go right or else I'm not talking to you right now. Um, so Ryan and Kaya rope rope up at that point to cross over and they get over to Josh and they start talking about what to do. They lower a, uh, bowline down to me with, uh, Ryan's rope, which I'm able to get my arms through. And then, you know, the bowline cinches to kind of behind me and they're able to start pulling from that point. And they pull and pull and they managed to pop me free out of the constriction where I was stuck. Um, By that point, I've been in the crevasse for about half an hour to 45 minutes. Uh, I'm soaked, starting to get quite hypothermic. My boots are full of water. I had shorts on and a down sweater. My down sweater is completely soaked through. So I'm, I'm pretty chilled and I'm, you know, just really happy to be on that rope and there have them pulling me out. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to help very much because it was overhung. And so I can't really dig into the ice at all with my boots or anything. And then on top of that, I'm just frozen solid. Um, so as they're pulling, my arms start to feel excruciating pain as I'm dangling from my armpits, just, you know, full body weight on the rope on my armpits. Um, but I'm, I'm just thinking, okay, I'm going to get out. It's going to be okay. Just keep pulling. And they're pulling and pulling and it takes them a fair bit of time to move me up, you know, little by little inch by inch, they're pulling me towards the top and they get me close, maybe four feet from the, from the lip. And Ryan yells down, all right, we don't know how to get you out from here. Uh, we're, we're going to have to work this out. Give us a minute. And I yelled back, I don't have a minute. I'm going to fall again. Or, you know, I'm just going to pass out. I felt like my arms could not take any more. Um, and I could see a, a ledge maybe 10 feet below where I was. And I thought if I can get to that ledge, I can get the, uh, the rope off of my arms, tie into my harness, and then they can figure out what to do from there. Um, I'm probably only about 50% conscious at this point, but I'm yelling back, you know, you got to lower me down a little bit. I got to get to this ledge. So they decide, okay. You're losing consciousness because you're just, you're so cold and yeah, just so cold and the extreme pain in my arms as well from um, dangling by my armpits. Uh, so they decide, okay, we'll go ahead and lower you down to that ledge so you can get it, get it tied onto your harness. And then we can figure out from there. Um, so I get to the ledge and get the uh, rope off of my arms. And that's when I realize just how broken or how badly damaged my arms are. They're just 
really useless. My hands are flopping. I, there's no way that I'm going to be able to tie into my harness. And so that's, uh, that's kind of the first spot that I remember thinking, I don't think I'm going to get out of this. Like this, this is it for me. And, uh, I yelled, I remember yelling that up to Josh, Josh, dude, I don't know if I'm going to get out of this one. And he's just yelling at me. Don't you give up on me. You think about your wife, you think about your kids, do not give up on me. And I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm right on the edge at that point. Okay, man, just hurry. And I'm thinking I need search and rescue. I need a helicopter. I need something. Um, which I did get the helicopter. It was just about 12 hours later. <laughs> so, uh, the last thing that I remember is Ryan, um, coming down in. So they, they talked at the top, Ryan decided I'll go ahead and rappel in to the crevasse to help get Tyler tied in. And then I'll climb out to help pull from the top. And, and there was an anchor. They had set up an anchor. On yeah. The they, ice. Yeah. They made a dead man anchor with, uh, with crampons buried in the snow and ice. And so that worked remarkably well, which that's one lesson that I learned is that you can build a dead man anchor. I've done a lot of dead man anchors in the desert with sand and rocks in canyoneering, but never done one, um, in ice. So that was a Ryan skill that he, he knew he had built those anchors. So he rappelled down in, um, got me tied in. I remember him talking to me, tell me about your wife, tell me about your kids. It's going to be all right, dude, we're going to get you out of here. And then the last thing I remember is him kind of climbing out. And then at that point, I completely blacked out. Did he put you, did he wrap you up in any, like a jacket or a blanket or? Um, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I think he just came in, got me tied in real quick and then um, got out to help pull. Um, so I did black out at that point and from there until about seven o'clock the next morning, I have no memory of what happened. It's, uh, it's on the story from Josh and Ryan and Kaya, but they've of course <laughs> shared what happened with me. Um, so I guess I blacked out there after Ryan left and rolled off of the ledge and got pinched back into the, um, the constriction in the crevasse. And this time I was laying horizontally in the, in that constriction. And so as Ryan and Kaya and Josh started to pull and they had built a pulley system so that they were getting a three to one mechanical advantage, um, with the pulleys. And so they were pulling hard and they said, the harder they pulled, the tighter I, I was, they were like, we're, you were not budging. And every time we pulled, you just scream, which I don't remember this, but they said, you just scream in pain. Um, so they decided something's happened. We don't know what Josh volunteered to go into the crevasse this time to, uh, try to see if he could help out from the bottom, uh, where I was stuck. So Josh rappelled into the crevasse, um, found me wedged in the constriction and the way that I'd fallen as they were pulling on my harness, it was kind of just camming me tighter into that constriction. So the harder they pulled, the tighter, you know, the more I was getting stuck because I was laid laid out sideways. Um, he managed to, uh, pop me free from that. And then he said, as soon as I while Ryan and Kyra were pulling on the rope, he said, as soon as he got me to pop free, there was so much tension in the rope that I just immediately lifted up a couple of inches above the constriction. And then he just yelled, pull, pull, pull. 
and Ryan and Kaya started pulling from the top while Josh lifted from the bottom. And he uh, climbed underneath me while Ryan and Kaya pulled from the top and Josh would push and try to make sure I didn't get stuck or bang off of anything anymore. Um, Josh also said when he got to me at the constriction where I was stuck horizontally, my face was covered in snow and ice and I was completely unresponsive, but still breathing. Um, so they, they got me right near the lip again. And again, because of how it was overhung, they just weren't sure how they could get me on back up onto the snow and ice. Um, so what they ended up doing is Josh kind of stemmed across the, the gap. He got me on top of him with Ryan and Kaya pulling. And then Josh said, he yelled at me, stand Tyler. And he said, I stood up on his leg and they flopped me over the side and got me out of the crevasse. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that was about an hour and a half to two hours after I initially fell in. Um, so at that point I was unresponsive, severely hypothermic, extremely hypothermic. Yes. Uh, they, they cut all of my clothes off of me, wrapped me in everything that they could possibly spare and then decided they needed to get me off of the ice. Um, you know, they, they didn't know if back injuries, neck injuries, whatever it may be. Um, but they said, there's no way that he's going to survive if we stay right here on the ice. The wind was kicking up the glacier. Uh, so they elected to move me over to the rocks on the side. Um, so they, they carried me across the snow and onto some rocks and got me set up on some rocks with a backpack around my feet and as much clothing as they could possibly spare covering me up. Um, Kaya is a wilderness first responder and had some really good medical training. So again, I mean, the, if you could pick, if you could hand pick three people, you're like, this is who I want to be on my life-saving team. You'd probably take those three people. Uh, couldn't, couldn't have asked for a better team to pull me out. Uh, right, uh, Kaya also had an inreach and she had sent an initial message while I was still in the crevasse, but it, I guess it hadn't gone out. It was not received. So once they got me over to the side, she looked at it, realized the message hadn't been received and sent another message sometime around 11 o'clock in the evening saying, uh, we had a person fall in a crevasse and we need help. And that was sent to the, uh, that was received by the Jenny Lake Rangers there in Teton national park. They, uh, they apparently sent some messages back asking for more information, but those messages also were not received. But uh, that message did go out and search and rescue started on the trail uh, just before midnight. Um, Ryan and Kaya and Josh continued to try to just keep me alive through the night. Kaya was taking my vitals. Uh, she said, you kept breathing, but it would get pretty sporadic. Your heart rate dropped to around 48 and you just felt so cold. So about four o'clock in the morning, they saw Ryan and Kai and Josh saw headlights coming up over the moraine. And about a half hour later, search and rescue, uh, two, two rangers from Jenny Lake Rangers arrived on the scene and they had a down coat, a bivy bag and some other warm gear that they were able to get me wrapped up in. Within about an hour, they said I started mumbling and, you know, started acting like I was alive again and do you remember that 
I don't remember any of this. Uh, Josh said, uh, about an hour and a half after the Rangers arrived. So maybe around six o'clock in the morning that I kind of tried to sit up and the Ranger said, Hey, I'm Cody with Jenny Lake Rangers. You've been in a climbing accident. And I, my response was, what's up? (laughs) And then I passed back out. I don't remember that either. Um, my first memory is about seven o'clock in the morning and it's starting to get light. I was trying to sit up. Then I kind of have some good memories. He was asking me my name, asking about my wife, my kids. Do you know what happened? And I said, yeah, I fell in a crevasse. And he said, okay, we're going to get a a helicopter up here and we're going to short haul you down to the meadows. And then from there, life flight's going to take you to Idaho Falls hospital. So about 7.30 in the morning, somewhere around there, the, uh, le- the search and rescue helicopter came in. They attached me to the gurney, and Cody was on the short haul with me, and they lifted me off the glacier and transported me down to the meadow to switch to life flight. Um, once I got to the life flight helicopter, I don't remember very much. I know they you know, at some point switched me into that helicopter. And the ne- my next real memory is in the emergency room in Idaho Falls. And the nurse was trying to take my temperature and she couldn't get a reading on me. She said, ah, I don't think this one's working. Grabbed a different thermometer. No, I'm not getting a reading on you. So they started just packing warm blankets around me, uh, switching those out every couple minutes and started getting me uh, warmed up. Um, they took me in for x-rays. And so my neck and back were still in good shape, thankfully. Uh, And that's about when I started realizing um, I can't move my arms at all. Uh, They were just flappy, you know, like a, like a limp wing, almost just flopping in the wind. Um, So they said, well, we think you suffered some nerve damage because all of your x-rays came back negative. We don't know how severe it is. And we're going to go from there. So I'm sitting there, not able to move my arms and just thinking about how grateful I am to be alive at that point. Um, I've been reading a book called How to Stay a Human in an Effed Up World. And it talks about how in any situation, there's infinite things to complain about and infinite things to be happy about. And I decided at that point, I was just, I'm alive. I'm just going to be happy. And I was thinking, Maybe, you know, I'm going to lose an arm. I don't know. But no matter what, I'm going to come out of this with a smile on my face. And I'd been in a great attitude to have. (laughs) Yeah. My my brother-in-law is an amputee. He's he lost a leg and he's an amazing example of strength and how to, you know, just keep moving, going through life. And so I kind of thought about him and thought about, you know, how easily I could I could be dead at that point and just went with the, the gratitude. Um, and I'd been in the hospital just for a few hours when I was first able to move my right thumb. (laughs) I just got a little twitch in my thumb. I called the nurse, look, I can move my thumb a little bit. And, oh, that's so good, whatever. And then within a couple of hours, I had some, a little bit of movement in my right hand. I could touch my thumb and pointer finger, my thumb and my middle finger together. Um, still nothing in my left hand, but since then it's just kind of been a, a slow but steady progression with uh, getting better. So what about your arms now? Can you, can you use your arms now? Three weeks A little later? bit. Yeah. So here we are just over three weeks later and my right arm has regained most of its mobility 
it's um, still pretty numb and tingly on my fingertips, especially. And I probably have about 20% of the strength that I did before. So no rock climbing or anything like that happening right now. Um, right now, actually <laughs> got my keys stuck in the door. You know, I can, I can turn it, but then pulling the key out, I just don't have the strength in the fingertips to get, get my key out of the door. Uh, things like that. And that's my right arm. My left arm is, was more severely damaged, but it's, it's getting better as well. I have pretty good movement, probably about 60% movement. I can make a, make a little fist with my left hand. Can't quite extend my fingertips out, but getting better. So do you think that this is caused because the rope was sort of slung underneath your shoulder a certain way and it maybe cut off blood to yep. your arms or do you think it's because you're being, you're, you're so cold or both? Uh, probably a combination of the two, but primarily the rope being underneath my arms. Uh, the brachial plexal nerve is what runs from kind of your neck through your shoulder and collarbone and down and, you know, makes it so that your hands and arms work. And they said it, the lower part is what controls your hands. So they're sure that the nerve was just pinched for, you know, half hour to an hour by the rope with my full body weight dangling on it. And hopefully just a matter of time until that recovers. Did anybody even know about this crevasse in the lower Teton glacier? No, even the search and rescue. I mean, they were coming across that same snow field that I, where I'd fallen in and Josh and Ryan and Kaya were yelling at him, be careful. There's a crevasse right there. And they just, I mean, they couldn't believe it. And they said they'd never done a rescue in that part of the uh, snowfield before. It was at least at one point, a legitimate glacial crevasse. It was blue solid ice down inside of it. Um, and just completely unexpected. The search and rescue guys said probably a hundred people have walked across that spot this summer unroped because it's just not a spot where you would think, Oh, I got a rope up here. And Josh and I are pretty conservative climbers. You know, we, we try to place gear where we need gear. We try to avoid places that look, you know, uncomfortable or sketchy to us. And that just wasn't a spot where we felt there was really any danger. And, you know, and most other people felt that way as well. The, uh, search and rescuers did a, you know, kind of investigation on it just to make sure that we weren't being reckless. And as they looked at it, they said, there's just no indication that it was here other than now there's a hole and it's completely unprecedented to have that in this spot in the Tetons. Oh, wow. So this is a, just a one-off. Do you think, I mean, what, what's the, what's been the weather like in Wyoming all summer? Has it been a warm summer? It has been. Yeah. So politically I'm going to blame global warming. Um, <laughs> I don't know how that's going to go over, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously the glaciers have been receding for a long time and this summer in particular has been really, really hot. And that day was a hot day. And I'm sure, you know, obviously that crack has been there for a long time. That part of the glacier isn't moving anymore. Um, the, the upper glacier is still, you know, expanding and retreating. You can see the crevasses very clearly. Uh, this part is really more of a snowfield. But I, I, my, my take is that it's in part of the ancient glacier that's been covered with ice and snow for who knows how long. And it just finally melted down to expose that crack. And, what, and so what were the lessons that you learned from this experience? Um, number one, think about who you're climbing with. Uh, I'm so fortunate that I had Josh 
with me. Uh, if I hadn't had him, you know, if I'd been out there and that's the spot where I probably would have gone solo, not up the whole route, but there across the snowfield. Um, so I probably would think twice before heading out solo into, uh, anything like that. Um, also the in reach came in really handy that Kaya had. I don't know if I would have made it through the entire night without search and rescue coming on the scene. Uh, so my parents bought me an in reach already. So I have one of those and, uh, be ready, you know, to use that. And then probably my biggest one is just think about what gear you're taking. I've always been kind of a minimalist in what gear I take on a trip. You know, I think, okay, I have enough to survive the night. Uh, I have enough to do this route, but not much more. I don't, you know, thinking about the weight of the pack. And my new thought is going to be, do I have enough to get out of X, Y, Z situations? And do I have enough to help people if I come across someone in X, Y, Z situation? The fact that Ryan had some gear, some pulleys, some snow pickets, things like that, and the knowledge really saved my life. And I want to make sure that if I'm ever in a similar situation and I have the opportunity, you know, to help another climber out, I'm ready to do it mentally and with the correct gear. Tyler thanks Josh, Ryan, Kaya, and the Jenny Lake Rangers. Without their assistance, he wouldn't be here to tell the story and he wouldn't be able to come home to his wife and his two kiddos. Thank you to Mammut for being the headlining sponsor. Thanks to Minus 33. Minus 33 Merino Wool Clothing is a 100-plus-year-old, five-generation family-run wool company. They produce 100% wool base layer products designed and tested by New Hampshire's own outdoors. It insulates when wet, has great UV protection, is super soft, odor-resistant, and moisture-wicking. Did I mention it doesn't stink? Visit M-I-N-U-S. 33.com and plug in code 33sharp892 for 15% off through the month of November. Tyler survived in large part because the three people that were with him had wilderness rescue training. One of them was even a wilderness first responder, which no doubt fueled the life-saving impulses during this rescue. Desert Mountain Medicine sponsors this podcast because we both know how important wilderness medical training is. Desert Mountain Medicine, innovative wilderness medicine training since 1998. Are you an avid winter backcountry enthusiast? DMM is excited to launch a new course called Wilderness First Aid for Winter Backcountry Users. This 16-hour course focuses on prevention, assessment, and treatment of injuries and illnesses common to winter backcountry recreation and includes the wilderness medicine guidelines for a treatment of an avalanche victim. Use promo code sharp for winter for a 20% discount on this course. To learn more and sign up, visit desertmountmedicine.com. Are you ready? Juggling your passion for sports with a busy life can be hard. You want a sports watch that is ready when you are and a smartwatch that handles your every day. Sunto 7 gives you the best of both worlds and it's designed to help you get the most out of your time. It's Sunto's first watch that combines its versatile sports experience and free offline outdoor maps 
with a helpful smartwatch feature from Wear OS by Google, making this watch the smartest sports watch yet. Go check it out at sunto.com slash sunto7 to learn more. To sign up for the Mammut Stony Hardshell Jacket just in time for winter, head on over to sharpendpodcast.com and enter to win. I'll draw and announce the winner on November 15th. Good luck. And remember, play hard and be smart. <laughs>